Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and visitors. It is good to, to gather with you this morning to praise our God of all grace. My name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the, the pastors here of Stafford Baptist. If I, if I haven't met you yet, I would, I would be uh, delighted to, to greet you after our service, so please hang around, hang around afterwards. We've come to the time in our service for us to hear the, the preaching of God's Word, so if you would... Please open your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Angels up and down. But, but as we begin, uh, we should pause and ask for God's help in our hearing and for the proclaiming of His Word. So, so please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as the fountain of all grace, the, the source of all of our wisdom and blessing. All that we have, we have by your grace. So we pray again that you would make your grace and power known to us by opening up your word to our hearts. So that we would again be amazed by grace and, and captured by it to do your will from the heart. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Sometimes the Bible calls on us to consider hard realities. So I have to begin today by asking, what would you say have been the darkest days of your life? What have been the darkest days of your life? We sang earlier of, of times when our, our sails have all been torn, when our sinking hopes are few. When has that described your life? Maybe those words we sang particularly resonate with you today. Church, consider that, that some of us are experiencing the darkest days of our life today. Or maybe when you think about your darkest hours, you think of, of times past, thankfully. And for many of us, those, those days are still ahead, and we don't know when they will come. So whether it's in, it's in the past, in the present, or still future, all of us experience the darkness of suffering and sorrow. It's, it's the reality of this life due to our sin and the sins of others against us. If you need help imagining what's that, what that's like, imagine waking up in the Ukraine this morning. And when those dark, night of, dark nights of the soul come, what, what is our hope? Psalm 30, verse 5, assures us that, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So for us, Saints, as, as we reflect on the past or anticipate the future, what assurance do we have that, that joy follows the night? If you're in that darkness today, where can you look for strength and for faith? Well, our sermon text this morning is the story of Jacob, not only literally in the darkness of night, but fleeing for his life, alone in the Wilderness, looking around him, he would have no reason for hope. 
His sin and the, the sins of others against him have brought him to the lowest point of his life. But what he, he finds is when he most deserved God's justice, he rather finds God's grace in the darkness of that wilderness. And as unique as his circumstances might be, the same assurance is true for us, whatever we face. So let's read this morning of Jacob's night and the hope he found of God's grace. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will, uh, and will give me bread and to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, here we have Jacob fleeing for his life alone in the wilderness, vowing himself to God, who has been gracious to him in his darkest hour, promising to fulfill all of his word to him, despite all of his sin. So our big idea this morning, a a one-sentence summary of, of our text Pledge yourself to God, whose grace is with us in our darkest hour, and will fulfill all that He has promised. Saints, pledge yourself to God, whose grace is with us in our darkest hour, and will fulfill all that He has promised. Rooted in His sovereign choice, God freely bestows grace on Jacob in His darkest hour. Instead of judgment, he receives lavish promises, the promise of Abraham, of, of land, of seed, of, of blessing, and, and the promise to be with him, to keep him, 
as he goes and as he comes back. And so Jacob responds with, with fear and awe and a pledge. Pledge yourself to God, whose grace is with us in our darkest hour and will fulfill all he has promised. And we'll have two points this morning. First, stairway to heaven in verses 10 through 15. Stairway to heaven in second, stones of promise in verses 16 through 22. Stairway to heaven, stones of promise. So let's look back at verse 10, the start of our passage, and our first point, stairway to heaven. It says, Jacob here has left Beersheba and he's headed toward Haran. This is what his mother instructed him to do back in our previous sermon in, in chapter 26, 43. Beersheba is obviously where his, his father Isaac had, had settled after returning from Gerar, that back in chapter 26, verse 23. And, and Haran is where his distant relatives are. This is where the brothers of Abraham remained before he left to go to Canaan. This is where Abraham, if you'll remember, had sent his servant to find a wife for, for Isaac, Haran. It's a, it's a massive journey, one that the servant, Abraham's servant, took 10 camels loaded with gifts, more than 400 miles. And here is Jacob, in verse 10, all alone with nothing. In fact, later on his return journey, in chapter 32, verse 10, he says that he left only with his staff. Well, he, he left home, we remember, home and family because his brother was planning to kill him. The, the repercussions of his own part in his scheme to, to deceive his father and, and steal his brother's blessing. In other words, he's here because of his, his own sin and the sin of others against him. And the picture we have here at the start is, is quite bleak. He has no bride price to secure a bride, though, though Isaac certainly could have afforded it. Sometimes you just have to, to Google your, your Bible questions. And an article I found by an accomplished theology professor, Craig Keener, said what we all know, why Jacob apparently travels to Mesopotamia without a bride price is something of a mystery. We simply don't know. But he goes without a bride price. And, and the picture gets even bleaker. Often in biblical stories, when they're overtaken by nightfall, they, they tell of them being hosted by, by people of the land, like Lot hosting the angels in Genesis 19. But not Jacob. In verse 11, Jacob is too far from any human habitation so he sleeps under the stars with a solitary rock for a pillow. It's certainly an, an evocative image, fleeing for his life, miles from civilization, overtaken by darkness with only the comfort of a rock. And this isn't, this isn't metaphor, it's, it's literal history, but, but it certainly invites us to consider ourselves in the same circumstances reeling from the consequences of our sin and the, the sins of others against us. In the, the dark night of our lives, alone and exposed. At that moment, what should Jacob have expected? He, he may have considered what he deserved. He had been guilty of, of lying, 
of using the Lord's name in vain, of, of dishonoring his father, of, of stealing, and motivating all of it, his belief that God's word was weak, that it needed his help. This sin we know deserves death. The, the wages of sin, what it earns, is death. It would have been just of God to end his life on that rock. We introduced a, a new song a few weeks ago, Christ the Shore and Steady Anchor. And I can imagine if, if, if he knew it, Jacob would have been thinking of that, that second verse. This is a time when, as we sing, temptation claims the battle. And it seems the night has won. We sing and he knows that he is justly accused. To, to see Jacob like this is a stark reminder of the consequences of our sin the morning after. This is how all sin will leave us sooner or later. As we learn from Jacob here, we, we learn a prayer for us when we face temptation to sin. Lord, help me now feel what I will feel tomorrow if I give in to sin. Lord, help me feel now what I will feel tomorrow if I give in to sin. Some of us, brothers and sisters, have a tender conscience and are, are keenly aware what we deserve for our sins from God. When you consider it, you might expect God to bring judgment at any moment, as if you're living with a, a constant axe above your head. If, if that's you, I want you to lean in here and listen carefully. Jacob had been notorious with his sin. But instead of an axe, God in, in judgment above him, what does God find above him in this unknown place? Verse 12, he dreamed. He sees an image indicating the unseen reality, what is truly above him. And behold, a ladder in verse 12. More likely a, a flight of steps on earth, it says, linking it to heaven. And behold, on those stairs, angels going up and down, coming to and fro between heaven and earth. And at its climax, in verse 13, none other than Yahweh, standing above it and in this stream now speaking down to Jacob. It's certainly an odd image. I don't think angels literally ascend and descend from heaven to earth on some normally unseen stairway. I, I think this image revealed by God is meant to convey some unseen reality to Jacob. Without knowing it, he is being guarded and kept by God's angels. Hebrews 1.14 makes clear the purpose of angels. It says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What Jacob sees in his dream is Yahweh presiding over his life. God directing everything. There was heavenly activity in this place even when he didn't know it. 
This vision is, is confirmation that, that Jacob himself was the recipient of, of divine revelation here in this desolate place. You know, I, I think the image calls to mind an earlier staircase in the book of Genesis. Trying to reach heaven. The Tower of Babel. There, mankind sought to to build a a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for themselves. But but God came down and scattered them. No, true access to heaven and God's presence is by His gracious initiative. By grace, He gives away. It is not something that we can build on our own. Church, what what Jacob sees in his dream is a gift of grace. He doesn't receive here what he deserves, but instead receives God's goodness toward one who deserves only punishment. Kent Hughes, a pastor in Chicago, put it like this. He says, fellow believers, this is all grace. Jacob, the conniving believer who was outcast and alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery with an unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was fleeing the consequences of his deception. He was not expecting grace But grace was unleashed upon his soul and without not even a word of reproach. The vision and the voice of God only bore assurance. So, brothers and sisters, for for all those who have taken shelter under, under Christ's blood, the acts of God's judgment no longer is above us. It has already fallen on your sins. It it fell on Christ on the cross when he took your sins upon himself and suffered for them. So like Jacob, what we discover over us is, is God in his grace. Not reproach, but assurance. And not because we merit it, but because God is gracious. And remember, this is all rooted in in God's sovereign choice. Even before Jacob was born, before he had done anything good or evil, God chose him. And now this is despite everything that Jacob has done since he was born. Well, in, in verses 13 through 15, the floodgates of that grace unleash onto Jacob the torrents of God's promises to him. What we have here is, is the first recorded interaction between God and, and Jacob. Certainly God, uh, Jacob has received blessings from God, but, but those through Isaac. Now God speaks himself to, to Jacob, and it is full of promise. First there in 14, you see he identifies himself as, as Yahweh, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. I'm sure you noticed as we read through the repetition of the, the very great promises that he had been, had been given to, to Abraham, now carried forward of land in verse 13, of, of offspring in verse 
14 and, and at the end of 14 that all the families of the earth will be blessed in him and his offspring. Jacob is, is now the hub of God's blessing on earth. And, and one day his seed will bring that blessing to all nations. Land, seed, and, and blessing. But not just the Abrahamic promises. And in, in even more in verse 15, the promise that God is with him in his flight. Wherever he goes, he says, even outside of the promised land, God will remain with him. And to top it all off, will bring him back. No, the assurance is that God will not leave him, that he will do all that he has promised. You know, for Jacob, the miles remain long. He is still without a a bride price. He is still without any earthly company. But despite what is ahead, he has every assurance that God will be with him and will bring him through every obstacle and, and more. You know, if, if we had time, we could review how, how every one of these promises given to Jacob is repeated from elsewhere in, in Genesis. Like, for example, when he says that his offspring as the dust of the earth, well, well that comes from Genesis thirteen sixteen, God's words to, to Abraham when he returned from Egypt. What, what God is doing is, is picking up these earlier promises and bringing them forward again. And God keeps bringing them forward. You know, you'll, you'll remember that Moses is writing this account of history to the generation that is wandering in the wilderness. Put yourself in their shoes. If you heard this promise made to Jacob that I will be with you as you leave the promised land and will bring you back, I will not leave you until I accomplish all that I have promised. What an encouragement would that be to you? They were wandering out, outside the promised land. Just as God had promised in verse 15 to keep, keep Jacob and bring him back to this land, So they knew that God would be faithful to his promise to the nation of Israel to bring them into that land. And of course he is faithful. These promises continue to be brought forward and forward and they make their way finally to us too this morning. And the path to us goes through Jesus. We read earlier in our service from the the end of of John chapter 1 where Jesus connects his own life to the like life of Jacob. Let me read John 1.51 again. And Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is clearly referring to the dream that Jacob has here in Genesis 28. But but notice, Jesus makes no reference to a ladder or or stairs. Why not? Well, the stairway to heaven is now Jesus himself. He is the connecting point between heaven and earth. The ministry of angels for for God's people and, and all other blessings come now through Jesus He, like Jacob before him, is is now the hub of blessing for the world. It is no longer at at Bethel that God reveals himself, 
But in Jesus, through him, comes the fullness of grace that surpasses and and replaces this earlier grace. It's as those early disciples said, we found of him whom Moses wrote. It is through Jesus that we have final and eternal rescue from the curse of sin. Though God made us holy and and perfect, we have all sinned against him, choosing our own way. But in love, God sent Jesus Christ to to live the perfect life and, and die in our place for our sins. On the cross, Jesus suffered all the punishment that that we deserve so that by faith in his death and by repentance of sins, we can be forgiven and we all receive the blessings that, that belong to Jesus. All of us, you too can, can know these blessings if you acknowledge your sins and, and turning from them, you trust in Christ for you. You know, the, the image that comes to mind is, is all the promises of God joining into to one swelling river flowing down to, to Israel and through Jesus finally to us. You know, on, on one of our trips to Minnesota, we stopped by Lake Itasca, which is the, the origin of the Mississippi River. And, and there, at the headwaters, you can step through the Mississippi River on a few rocks. It's flowing at six cubic feet per second. Well, but as it goes south, tributary after tributary joins that growing river. And finally, at New Orleans, where it ends, it's flowing at 600,000 cubic feet per second. That's 100,000 times the flow by the time it ends. Well, here in Jacob, Genesis 28, We're at the Mississippi somewhere still in maybe central Minnesota, right? The promises flowing from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac now flowing through Jacob. But the the river continues on. It it flows forward, moving more and more promises being added, the river growing and growing. Well, where's the New Orleans of this river of promise? Well, all that flow ends in one place, Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The, the promises of God are swelling little by little, pointing forward to the one who will f- come to fulfill them all. The one who brings us to the land of our inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, whose family will be a great multitude that that no one can number, who will destroy the curse of our sin and death to secure eternal blessing. In the true and better Jacob, Jesus, these promises are for us too. God stands over us in the the hour of our darkness in grace. And the the torrent of unmerited favor flowing towards us through Christ. All the promises of God find their yes 
in him. So even, even when you can't see it and obstacles remain ahead, the invisible spiritual reality is that God is with you and for you. Even when uh, we know that our sins truly deserve God's opposition, we can expect God's grace. And, and saying that's, that's different than being entitled to grace. Entitled grace is an oxymoron. To, to be grace, it has to be a gift, something that we don't deserve. But we can expect grace, not because we merit it, but because God is immeasurable in grace. He has inexhaustible riches of grace. Yes, God in his love for us will discipline us in our sin. Our sin grieves the Spirit of God. But in Christ, they will never receive his wrath. That would be unjust of him. Christ has already suffered the wrath for our sins. So brothers and sisters, the experience of Jacob in these verses is meant to train us in our darkest hours to hope for grace. Christ doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we are in the need of a fresh forgiveness. When we are burdened like Jacob with distress and need and, and emptiness. No, that's, that's the whole point. It's what he came to secure for us. He went down into the horrors of death and, and plunged through to the other side to provide for us limitless supplies of grace. This is why he came. This is who he is. As the author Dane Ortland put it, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. These are his own deepest wishes. Brothers and sisters, when you understand Christ's heart like that, when his grace is real to you, the only appropriate response is worship. It's all. And that's exactly what we see happen in Jacob. This brings us to our, our second point, Jacob's response when he awakes in verse 16 and our, our second point, stones of promise. Stones of promise. In verse 16, Jacob awakes the next morning after this revelation of grace from God and, and he speaks even with no one to hear. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. I, I particularly love how Jacob uses God's name with reverence throughout this passage. Unlike in his deception of Isaac, you know, looks can be deceiving. He, he didn't know that the Lord was in this place. But now he has seen the spiritual reality. He is not alone. The presence of God is with him. And it leads him in verse 17 to fear. This is the fear of awe. Jacob himself says it. How awesome is this place. Awesome having the traditional meaning. 
something that produces awe, reverential respect in fear, a a fear that causes us to, to bow in worship, having seen the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, not just in theory, but to him, to to you. The soul's response to the reality of grace is reverential fear and awe. It's as we sung, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Our worship, while joyful, shouldn't be glib or rote. Hebrews 12, 28 calls us to to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, in in worship, Jacob here uses the stone to, to build a pillar. He anoints it with oil. Pillars are often built as a reminder or a witness to a promise like like Jacob will make with Laban in Genesis 31. This pillar he builds as a witness to his vow, his, his promise in the last three verses of our section. So after naming this place Bethel, house of God, Jacob pledges himself to God. Now I'll grant that upon first reading this, this vow sounds a bit like Jacob is bargaining. He starts in, in verse 20, if you do all this, then I will make you my God. And, and maybe, maybe that's how we should read it, that there's still more scoundrel than, than Satan in Jacob the deceiver. But I, I think we should read this more generously. He has been genuinely struck by fear and awe. This is simply the the standard construction for vows. If, then. One commentator, Sidney Gradanus, explains it for us. Vows were not made to induce God to do something he was not willing to do. They were made to bind the worshiper to the performance of some acknowledged duty. Jacob made this vow on the basis of what God has guaranteed to do. He was thus taking God at his word and binding himself to reciprocate reciprocate with his own dedication. So I think this is evidence that, that dumbstruck by God's grace, Jacob has, has grown from the man who, who doubted God's word, who now thinks it's to be trusted. You'll notice in his pledge, he only expects God to do exactly what he has already promised in verses 13 through 15, to be with him, to keep him, to bring him back, nothing more. So in in light of God's grace, he has certainty that God will perform what he has promised. It says, God says to Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to perform it. Saints, God is with us in our darkest hour and he will fulfill what he has promised. You know, I'll I'll jump ahead in the story a bit because I'm sure you can already guess God does fulfill every promise to Jacob. God watches over his word to perform it. We'll see this as we continue to study Jacob's story in the weeks to come. 
And, and in fact, on his way back in, in Genesis 32, more angels of God meet him. And it's the only other place in the entire Old Testament that that exact phrase, angels of God, shows up besides our passage here in Genesis 28. I, I, think, I think he sees those again to remind him, even when we cannot see, God's angels stay with us. He is with us and never leaves us. And so Jacob's response here is to pledge himself to God. He makes a vow. The Lord will be his God and and all that that entails. He will come back and worship him here at Bethel. And he says from all that, that God gives him, he will give back a tenth. Changed by the grace of God, the grabber has become the giver. You know, it's interesting, long before God's law mandated grace, motivated this man to give a tenth to God. Just to be clear, the the New Testament never commands Christians to to give a tenth. No, it, it it goes beyond. When Paul wanted to motivate the Corinthian church to give, he talks not about what God commands, but but grace. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And later, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. So as we see in Jacob, the reality of God's grace causes us not only to depend on God's word, but to generously give of what his grace has bestowed. All that we need. The reality that we speak of this morning is is what we sang of in In the hymn, All I Have is Grace. You remember, we sang, we we say, All I know is grace. So we pledge ourselves to God. We sing, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone. O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Our pledge to God. I think the Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. It says, I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christian, has God by his Spirit made you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Can you, in light of God's grace this morning, say, the Lord shall be my God in all that that entails. He has promised all to me, so I will give all to Him. He will reign over me as the one and true God, the worship of my heart and purpose of my days. He will rule over all 
my money, my time, my loves. Paul put it simply in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, this isn't something that you just add to your routine, that you put on your checklist and get to it at some point in the week. This is not a call to another religious duty. This is a call to a completely new life. If you're joining us this morning and you're not a Christian, thank you for being with us. The the Bible would encourage you to count the cost before you make the commitment to follow Christ. This kind of commitment is not only lifelong, but all of life encompassing. All those of us this morning who have made this commitment can testify. It has been hard, but it is incomparably worth the cost. But but notice, saints, it is motivated by grace. It is only Jesus who makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. You cannot do it apart from his gracious work. The strength to follow his commands could never come from me. And this is an appropriate opportunity for us, brothers and sisters, for us to examine ourselves. Especially as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we are invited to consider our lives. Is this kind of dedication evident in your life? Has His grace left the indelible mark on your souls, a life wholly pledged to God? What we celebrate this morning in the Lord's Supper is something like Jacob's pillar, erected in remembrance of God's grace to him and his pledge to God. We come to this table to remember God's grace to us, that instead of crushing us in our sins, even in our darkest days, God in love crushed his son for our sins. And in this meal, we remember our pledge to God. In light of his great grace, we give ourselves completely to him until he comes again. In the dark night of our sins and sins of others against us, we have assurance of God's invincible grace. So church, pledge yourself to God, whose grace is is with us in our darkest hour and will fulfill all that he has promised. Let's pray. Our Father, we give ourselves completely to you this morning. Lord, not because of our strength, but because of your grace that has made us new. Lord, we praise you that in our darkest hours, in the the depth of our sins, in the sins of others against us, we did not receive what we deserve, but rather your grace. Lord, because Christ experienced the darkness of our sins on that cross, we experienced the light of life in him. 
Lord, even when, when we cannot see it, we know that you are with us and you will keep us, that your grace sustains us until you will have fulfilled all that you have promised, not only in this age, but in the age to come, when Christ is with us forevermore. Lord, it is on that that we set our hope this morning and ask for your grace in Christ's name. Amen.